Hello and welcome to Pivot Points. This is the podcast about the pivotal moments that have shaped our academic, professional and personal lives. I'm Femke, your Head of Communications at Wolfson College, and I'm all about creating ways for you to share your stories like this podcast. This episode is a conversation with Hermione Lee, who was Wolfson's president from 2008 to 2017 as Tim's predecessor. As a writer of biographies, she's naturally very curious about people, so would obviously rather be in my shoes as the interviewer. And we're very lucky that she's brave enough to step into another role as the interviewee. Thank you very much for, for coming in and being on the podcast. Um, one thing I have to say is that I I don't think I've ever known a head of a former head of an institution or a former boss or someone in that capacity with such a consistently positive reputation from everybody that I speak to here. Um, so how how does it feel for you now coming are into we college? Recording? Yes, we are recording. <laughs> this is live. <laughs> well, that's very nice for you to say. I'm sure that if you had picked your picked your uh, your people more carefully, you might have found some negative remarks. Um, it's it's very nice coming back. I think uh, I regard this job, uh, and I think a lot of other people who do this kind of job think the same as a kind of relay race. I was actually at school always terribly, terribly bad in relay races at passing the baton. Mm. I would always be the person that dropped the baton or failed to pick up the baton. Okay. So I, you know, would have like wanted to come become better at that in my adult life. And so it's very nice to have passed the baton and to see different concerns coming up with the next head of house, but also some of the same old issues coming around clearly and it but mm. it's a great pleasure to see a college which you've put nine years of your life mm. into as your last um you know fully paid up job mm. very nice to see it in such good hands and and going forward in such an imaginative and enterprising way so it's nothing but a pleasure to come back and it's a particular pleasure because you can come back and eat and drink and be merry <laughs> and not have to chair any not have to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's great yeah nine years is a very long time it is a long time mm. um and um, i suppose my, my follow-up question from there really is that you you obviously have a long history with oxford and that mm. brings me to your first pivot point of deciding to come here at the age of 17. Yes, so let's start with that, if yeah. we may, and then I'll work forward from that. Let's do um, that. So, yes, uh, one of the pivot points I've chosen is a very, very vivid memory of coming to Oxford in October 1965 um, uh, and coming to Hilda's. And I came up quite young because I had taken the then Oxford entrance exam when I was 16, and so I came up when I was... 17, and I had had a very um, privileged, bookish, musical, middle-class London childhood. I was a, a GP's daughter, doctor's daughter, uh, and I had been quite a stay-at-home. I hadn't been a very adventurous, runaway kind of child. I had, I had not actually lived away from home before. So the moment of getting out of the car... And walking away from the car down Cowley Place <laughs> towards the gates of St Hilda's was actually a tremendously important moment for me. And I remember making an internal decision that I wasn't going to turn round 
um, and this sort of ludicrous self-appointed <laughs> moment of this is where my independence starts. Mm. I'm sure my poor parents were sitting in the car going, oh, she's not giving us a wave. You mm. know? And I remember feeling my legs trembling and thinking, mm. I'm not going to turn around. I'm now going to be an independent <laughs> adult. <laughs> Actually, of course, that is one of the most important things about mm. going to university yeah. at whatever age, really, but especially when you go in your teens, mm. which is... Whatever you learn, mm. you are going to learn to be an independent adult. You're going yeah. to make your own ghastly mistakes and <laughs> you're going to make your own choices. Mm. Um, and I went cushioned in those years by the fact that, you know, since, world, since after World War II, the government, through the local education authorities had paid students fees mm. and had provided maintenance grants and all that was swept away in the in the 1990s mm. and i also had very strong parental support so i could afford to go to university away from my hometown mm. for instance which many students can't now mm. um, and i was cushioned in that way which i looking back on i think of as an era of extraordinary privilege and good luck and good fortune at the time, I took it completely for granted. Mm. I don't think I ever thought about it. Mm. I simply regarded it as my life, and this is what I was going to do. And I'd gone on exhibition to St Hilda's, and I was mm. very proud of that. And I was going to have a seventeen-year-old, I think. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I was going to have a wonderful time, and on the whole, I did. I mm. never thought about the money. Mm. And looking back now, I suppose one of the moral lessons that I give to myself is not to not to take things for granted mm. to be aware of your good fortune mm -hmm. to be aware of your opportunities and i know i talk to my my husband's grandchildren for instance and who are in their teens and their 20s and this generation of people of that age seem to be far more aware of the political and social mm basis on which they're living their lives mm. far far more than I was and many of my generation were mm. so that's that's been a big change in many ways and then I walked into St Hilda's and the first thing pretty much the first thing that happened in that freshest week was that I met six other girls mm. I think on the first day they were all very different and we remained friends for the whole of the three years. Mm. We were a sort of group. Mm -hmm. And that, that solidarity of female friendships, mm. which was actually a very important part of a single-sex college mm. too, though I'm sure it continues, um, was incredibly important to me. And I, I actually, I mean, they met various different destinies. Some of them are rather sad, but, um, and I lost touch actually with with most of them but just last week I went to a memorial event at St Cross College and for the a previous master of St Cross Dick Rep and his widow was one of those girls that I had mm. met in 1965 and it was it was a sad occasion but it was also very wonderful to have that reunion 57 years mm. after I'd first met her yeah. and to think of those lives all mm. going on. So, yes, so that female solidarity was a tremendously important thing in my life and did change my life, actually, and would probably lead me on to my next pivot point. Yes. And what did you struggle with at that time? 
what I was most challenging to you? I wanted to be tremendously popular, tremendously active, have a finger in every pie. I wasn't interested in politics and I wasn't interested in sport. Mm-hmm. Those were totally closed books to me. Mm-hmm. But I was very interested in journalism and I was very interested in theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to make my mark, I think. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I wanted to do very well by my tutors. I had mm-hmm. a remarkable set of tutors of that generation of rather fierce, very independent mm-hmm. um women tutors who mm. seemed to be incredibly old at the time they were probably in their 30s can you 40s. pick one and describe them oh um it was a splendid lady called Anne Elliot who left a very strong mark on all her students mm. um and she was well, beautiful in a sort of she had a bun and mm. plain very plain severe clothes mm. and she was extremely quiet and she was a great Spencer scholar, and as I couldn't make head or tail of Spencer, that was a slightly <laughs> unfortunate rip. But she had this habit of, you would say something you thought was absolutely brilliant in your tutorial, and there would be a gigantic pause, mm. tremendous silence while you heard your remarks sort of falling flat mm. onto the floor. And then after a very long time, she would make a somewhat quizzical comment and I always wanted to be able to teach like that of course I never did because mm-hmm. I talk all the time <laughs> but she, she was she was very remarkable and she was she was very austere and she, there was something a bit nun-like about her mm. um, and I tremendously wanted her respect and admiration mm. at the same time I wanted to go off and act in plays and mm. things so I think one of the problems was was that and the other was a sort of the the, the usual kind of crazy emotional seesaw that mm. most teenagers have when they go up to university and suddenly they're surrounded by all kinds of people trying to influence them and mm. in all kinds of ways and of course in those days there were far fewer women at Oxford mm-hmm. than there were men so we had a great time yeah. <laughs> but at the same time it was all quite hectic and yes, complicated I can imagine that sounds yes. chaotic yeah. Um, I'm also interested in what impact your Oxford experience, as in the label of having come to Oxford, has on your identity. Because I think that's something that comes up in my conversations here in the college just and in the university as a whole. This idea of the reputation that going to Oxford carries. Yes, I think it's a good and bad reputation, mm. actually. I mean, there is still, and, and I think in some ways probably rightly so, an aura of um, privilege uh, around the Oxford experience. And we've all, all of us involved in Oxford teaching and Oxford life and Oxford administration are, you know, have been and are working hard mm. to to change that. Mm. Um, but I think it's still there and I, uh, it doesn't always serve you in good stead I, you know people who apply for jobs to other universities can sometimes find that an Oxford degree is not necessarily their best passport mm. and that the potential employers will be thinking oh well they were at Oxford and so they won't understand the system in this mm. in this university that does that does I think happen on the other hand of course you have the astonishing luxuries of uh, the intellectual life mm. here you know in my case principally the library Mm. um it is not like anywhere else in the world really Mm. and to have had that library 
for three years in one's life. Indeed, in my case, for five years, because I went on and did a B-Phil, as it yeah. was then called. Mm. Um, so it, it's it's both, of course, enormously important and advantageous, and in some ways um, it's, it's not exactly a shackle, mm. but it's an identifying mark, mm. uh, which doesn't always work to the good. In my case, it was, you know... The, crucially important to me that I left um, Oxford after my undergraduate and graduate years and spent mm. 31 years teaching in other institutions mm. and then came back mm-hmm. uh, in 98. So it's it's been of the utmost importance for me to have those years in America and Liverpool and York University, mm. which had nothing to do with Oxford. Yeah. How did you then feel after completing your degrees in Oxford? How did you feel about yourself and where you wanted to go in life? I didn't want to leave when I finished my undergraduate degree. Mm. Um, I got a first and I was being encouraged to um, stay on. Um, I, I remember very vividly in my last year having a choice between playing Masher in the production of three sisters and working mm. for a first mm. um, and I chose working for a first and I've always slightly regretted <laughs> it in a way because there was a part of me that wanted to go into the yeah, you know, theatre world. Yeah. Um, I appeased that longing by writing a book about Tom Stoppard. So. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. And then after I'd done a two-year BPhil, I decided um, not to do a DPhil. Mm. I wanted to get on I wanted to earn my living mm. um, so I got a fellowship in this in the states in 1970 which was my first teaching job mm. so my first teaching job was when I was 22 so mm. I did start very young mm. uh, yeah, in my profession young. and mm. have gone on ever since uh, until I, I retired from the college mm. in 2017 so it's been a long a mm. long haul in academic life and looking back I, I kind of wish I'd taken a break or Oh. done other things maybe for a couple of years but what do you think you've learned though from just going straight into that I was very eager to carry on the kinds of conversations I've been having as a student mm. but with other st- with students that I could teach or yeah. talk to about my literary you know what I knew yeah. I was very very keen to pass on this knowledge and thinking and yeah. uh and yeah, I was I was keen to write, mm. um, and keen to have a regular employment, which would allow me to write books mm. as well. Mm. Well, that quite nicely brings me on to your second pivot point then of agreeing to write a biography of Virginia Woolf in nineteen eighty nine. Um, how did that come about? Was that yes. something that you were always interested in? I'd I'd been an academic f- since nineteen seventy and. I was then in the 80s, I was at the University of York and I'd done a lot of reviewing and I had a television books programme on Channel 4 for quite a bit of time during the 80s and I'd written four books by then, one of which was a a critical book on on Virginia Woolf and these were literally critical Mm. books and I was asked, in fact I was asked twice I was asked by a publisher in 88 or something like that to write a new biography of Virginia Woolf. There had been the big standard, well-loved biography by her nephew, Quentin Bell, which Mm. was the kind of 
that was the sort of marker for Virginia Woolf studies at that mm. point. And I said, no, I thought it was a ridiculous idea. There were hundreds of books on Virginia Woolf <laughs> and I couldn't see any point in doing this again. And Why do you think they asked you? Well, then I was asked again by a person who's had a lot of influence on my life, a, a very remarkable person called Carmen Khalil, who had been the founder and editor of Virago Press, and I'd mm. done some work for her. And she was then the uh, um, director of Chateau and Windus, who ever since then have been my, my main publisher. Mm. And Carmen asked me to do this, and I thought... Well, if two lots of people think it's time for a new life of Virginia Woolf, and if two lots of people think that I could do it, mm. uh, and if Carmen in particular, who's an astonishing force of energy and creativity and decisiveness and willpower mm. and feminist enterprise, mm -hmm. think that it should be me, then I should say yes. Um, but why did they think it should be you? I don't know. I, th I suppose they thought I was interested in Virginia Woolf and I could write. Mm. Um and that I might be able to write a biography. I mean, the, I think the two, you know, the two things about this that I look back on is that of people often say to me, how do you learn to be a biographer? Hmm. And of course, you don't learn to be a biographer. You learn by doing it. Hmm. And that is the case with most jobs. Yes. I mean, I take it that's what you're doing now in this yeah. job. You learn by doing it. Absolutely. You don't know whether you can do it till you, till you, till you are doing it. Yeah. So... There was that. Um, I think I was also rather out of tune with what was happening in English studies in the 1980s. I think I was rather out of tune with critical theory and with deconstruction mm. and with the um, French-based theories of the death of the author. Mm. And, um, and I found it becoming increasingly alien to me, actually. And so writing a life of a writer in whose life I was very interested in, which mm. was a difficult life to write because it was very contested mm. and still is, mm. actually. Um, people have very strong feelings, pro and con, Virginia Woolf, was, was exactly the kind of challenge I wanted. And maybe Carmen recognised that this would work mm. for me. So I think it's, I think, the, as it were, the moral of the story that I tell myself is being willing to jump Mm. and take on, you know, what to me was a big challenge. I mean, mm. we're not talking about, you know, running the country or climbing a mountain. This mm. is a quiet, bookish <laughs> life we're talking about. But Still nonetheless, these are, big, <laughs> yeah. these are big challenges Absolutely. within one's own life. And mm. there was a lot of... I had a lot of apprehension. Mm. I had a lot of fear. Um, what were you scared I, of? I was scared of not being able to do it. I was scared of not being intelligent enough for her. Mm. And I was scared of not finding my way into into the right shape for the book because mm. she herself was so deeply critical of conventions mm. of biography and constantly writing about how the conventional biography simply skates over the surface mm. and you never get to the heart of the person. And mm -hmm. I wanted to try and find a way of doing it that I thought would. So I kind of reinvented the form of biography a little bit in my in my own way. This is now a very common thing to do but it wasn't a sort of standard cradle to grave operation as mm. it were um so i i think i think looking back it was about taking being willing to jump and try something new and also taking the opportunities that come your way most of the big decisions pivot points in my life actually have come at me mm. rather than me going for them mm. and it's a curious thing and i i sort of look back on this and think 
you know, I should have made more decisions. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but the decisions, I suppose, have been knowing when to take your chance, knowing when to take your opportunity, because they don't come round again. Yeah. And in what way did writing that biography either confirm or change your identity mm. as a woman? Deeply changed my identity as a, as a woman, as a writer, as an academic, mm. as a professional person in my, in my field, um, because it made me think about a great woman's life very, very hard and very carefully. And I was, as it were, re-evaluating it in the sense that anyone who writes a big biography of a major figure who is a sort of contested figure is always going to be writing it from the point of view of their their education, their race, their nationality, their gender. Mm. You know, you bring to it what you are, but you also are changed by encountering that life. And it made mm. me think about the terrible battle that she had between... Um, ferocious creative commitment to doing what she wanted to do and knew she needed to do and terrible problems with physical and mental illness and just thinking about that battle mm. was to me very energizing actually and yeah. you know I think it's a heroic story actually yes. and maybe there's something in me that likes heroes yeah um I think I always have liked heroes uh, and wanted to create it as not as a sentimental story but as a heroic story so all of that was very important and then in professional terms it opened a lot of doors to me mm. and it was a it was it was well received when it came out in 96 and I think out of that came my appointment as Goldsmiths Chair mm. at New College here in 1998. Mm. So it had a very powerful effect on my on my life. And then yeah. I kind of turned me into a biographer rather than principally a literary critic. Yeah. And in what way do you think your academic interests changed as you changed throughout your career? Well, I think I... I don't know quite how to answer that. I mean, I've had a, I've had a long interest in American literature, and my first job was in America, and I've written a lot about American writers, including Philip Roth and Willa Cather, and um, I did a big biography of Edith Wharton, mm. um, and that kept pace with um, my teaching of American literature. Mm. So I suppose as I developed more and more interest in that, that became part of my my writing life mm. as well um i w i was thinking of course uh, as anybody who ever met the queen has thought over the last few days about them you know their encounter with the queen and mm. I, I was i got a gong and i went to the palace uh, to get my gong and the queen gave me my gong and she asked me a question and i had been wondering what she was going to ask mm. me <laughs> and she has a gentleman you know on her standing on her left who mutters in her ear the mm. name and the job of the person she's about to yes not exactly anoint but you know yeah. I mean. um, and she said to me tell me how do you combine your writing with your teaching 
And I thought, mm. this is an absolutely brilliant question. And I wonder if she's got half an hour to spare. <laughs> she could have been a journalist. <laughs> exactly. And so how do you combine your writing with your teaching has been, of course, mm. as it is for so many academics, mm. the key question. And yes. the answer I gave her at the time and looking back, I thought, yeah, I, I kind of stand by that, mm. was they feed into each other. Mm. Um, and so I suppose you asked me about how writing that book and writing other books have kept pace with my academic life. Mm. I suppose they have kept pace with the things that I'm interested in. Yes. But also the writing has not necessarily been tied to the teaching. So, mm. for instance, I wrote a life of an English novelist called Penelope Fitzgerald, mm. um, who I think is a genius. Mm. Um, and that came, that also came at me. The family came and asked me if I would do it, and I said yes. But that's not somebody I would have been teaching because no. she's not on any reading list. So it doesn't always keep pace. Yeah. This idea of you seeing other people as heroes reminds me of a lovely anecdote that I have from a Wolfson alumnus, uh, Shahazad Akbar, oh. who I interviewed for Plans and Prospects this summer. And she said, uh, she was obviously here under your presidency, she and she said that she essentially worshipped you. And that you well, were. Quite <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that was the same impression yes. I came away from that right. interview with. Um, and, but the, the reason she worshipped you was that she really saw you as such an incredible example of female leadership. And I'm wondering if, those, if, if that as a role came naturally to you. And how much you took from other people who you mm. saw as your heroes. I, I'm very touched and moved to hear about that from Shahzad. In fact, Shahzad gave me the idea for, um, this is not unlike pivot points, uh, for something I set up at Wilson while I was here, which was the Life Stories Day. So there are so many people in this college from all over the world, mm. and you've only got to sit down at them next to them at lunch for five minutes, you know. And I always used to go and have lunch with the students when mm. I was when I was here, and I would just listen to their what they had to tell me really. Mm. Um, and she said that when she'd been at Smith, they'd had this day where people told their story in some form. It could be a dance or a poem mm. or a piece of music or an anecdote mm. uh, for four minutes. Mm -hmm. And everybody just came, and so I stole that idea mm, from her. Um, so yes, and of course Shahazad's career is just absolutely extraordinary, mm. and she is a a role model for many many people. Yes, um, and I'm terribly glad that she's attached to the, going to be attached to the college. It's mm. marvelous for us. Um, yes, I, I suppose from my own life, much less dramatically, uh, when I got the um, when I was appointed at, as the Goldsmiths Chair in '98. One of the pleasures of that for me was that I was the first woman mm. to take that chair. And since then, my successor was the late Laura Marcus, who's mm. very much mourned and very much missed. But it was wonderful for me that she took that baton mm. over uh, from me. And similarly, when I came here in 2008, having done that job for 10 years, mm -hmm. um, I was the first woman who'd been appointed to be president of Wilson. And at that time, although things, I'm glad to say, have rapidly changed over the last 15 years or so, in there Wilson weren't that many women heads of houses mm. in Oxford. Mm. I mean, I think there were six of us or eight of us out of whatever it is, 30-something. Mm. Um, so uh, that's changed a lot. I think mm. it's now half and half, Yeah, um, which is great. But, I yeah, I felt like a bit of a pioneer. Mm. And one of my... 
great friends and role models in that was uh, Margaret Macmillan, who was then head of St Anthony's, mm-hmm. and who was also like me, combining writing books whilst mm. running a college. And how do you feel Wilson has changed since then? I, I think that what I needed to do when I came to Wolfson, and this is my third pivot point, as mm. it were, which is the moment when I decided to accept the the job here, which was not an entirely easy decision because I did, after all, have this very fine chair. Mm. Uh, and had I been a um, named chair at Cambridge, I could have kept my named chair and mm. run the college. But the mm. Oxford system is very different, I think, yeah. because Oxford asks much more mm. of its heads of houses, perhaps, in terms of sort of it being a full-time job mm. I would have liked to do both yeah <laughs> but that was so so giving that up was sort of unheard of mm. I mean people didn't give up uh, the goldsmith's chair and there were, I, I was aware that there was a lot of some astonishment mm. um, and some amazement mm-hmm. that I had done this mm. that I had given up a very prestigious academic post mm. in order to run a a college and not a grand old Oxford college but mm. a you know ever-changing mm. relatively young very un-Oxfordy kind mm. of college in many ways yeah. so I was aware that I was creating ripples mm. that's not why I did it mm. but I could see that that was a side effect and I could see also that Wolfson could change you know that it's that its character needed to be cherished and um, kept going and enriched all the time but that there were things it could do that it didn't already have Mm. like an auditorium Mm. like a cafe like Mm. an extension to the library like the academic clusters I mean there were there was lots of work going on particularly in the classical and uh, linguistics area Mm. Um, but there were all kinds of energies that could be channeled Mm. and so I think what I and this may have changed things a bit I think I think what I try to do is to ask everybody on the governing body who could Mm. to to switch a little percentage of what they were doing more towards the college Mm. You know, to just re-angle some of what they were doing so that it took a college woods direction Mm. um, and to make the most of the remarkable fact that you have all these different interests and different specialisms and Mm. different forms of scholarship and to make those intermingle Mm. perhaps a bit more than they had been before. I don't think there had been a huge amount going on in that direction Mm -hmm. before I arrived. Mm. So I think it was a sort of expanding of the plant Mm. (laughs) and... And invigorating, perhaps, or enlivening of what was actually going on inside the college. Mm. And then I, you aren't yourself aware of being a role model or a hero, or, and you would be a ridiculous person if you <laughs> thought of yourself in those terms. But I suppose the fact that I was the first woman mm. and, that I, and that I did sort of commit to the job and that mm. I did spend a lot of time in the college and mm. that I did all sort of turn up and have lunch with people, mm. students, I mm. mean, and, and had a lot of interrelationship with the students in terms of creating the Life mm. Stories Day and the President's Seminars and mm. things like that. I suppose that was well looked on, yeah. I mm. think that was... I think that made people feel cheerful. Yeah. And what do you think 
What do you think it was about your personality, you as Hermione, that brought those things to this role and had that impact? I find it embarrassing to talk about myself in that self-analytical way, which is why I'm not going to write an autobiography and why I'm really hoping there won't ever be a (laughs) biography. Somebody might write one about you. (laughs) But I suppose um, I'm interested in other people. Yes. I mean, I want to know what they're doing and I want to know what's going to happen to them and Mm. I want to know why they're doing what they're doing. And so I suppose it's partly just general nosiness. Mm. So is it deeply uncomfortable for you to be the one being interviewed? horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. I'm also wondering then, so we've we've talked about people who, for you, felt like heroes and people that you worshipped in the past... Who is there somebody in your life like that now? My husband. Who you look to. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I never I never finished the story of coming to Wolfson actually. Mm. Um so talking of heroes, uh, one of the people who lured me into Wolfson, <laughs> or the main person actually who lured me into Wolfson was a colleague of mine in the English faculty, who was the poet John Storworthy, who mm. had been who was then acting president yeah. uh, after the death of the previous president and who had been acting president before and I knew him very well uh, and he's and I, I had no intention or desire of becoming a head of house mm. I had been approached before and I thought no this is not at all what I want to do mm. um, I had done 10 years as goldsmith's chair mm. I was turning 60 and I was very intrigued by the thought that I could do a different job in my 60s. I liked the idea of trying to do something that I didn't know I could do Mm. at that period of my life because I knew that I could perfectly well go on doing all the things I could do, Mm. teaching and writing Mm. and giving papers at conferences and all the rest of it, Mm. and that would perfectly well last me till what was due to be my retirement age, which was 67 Mm. then. So coming to the college would give me a little more lease of life as well because I actually didn't have to... I mean, I chose to retire after nine years, Mm. partly because I was in the middle of a big book I wanted to finish and also because I thought there's a point where you feel, okay, someone needs to come in and freshen this up Mm. now. You know, it's time to pass the baton. Yes. Um, so you just feel that yourself when it's the you right kind time. Of, you kind of begin to get the feeling that you don't. You want to quit while you're ahead. Mm. You don't want people to be asking you if, they'd, if you'd like to spend more time with your family. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, you, and it, there's just a moment where it starts to feel a little bit repetitive. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, okay, I'm back on this annual cycle now. Mm. Now we do this, now mm. we do this. And it isn't... And also you've done the kind of the group of key things that you wanted to do, which Mm. was in my case, you know, fundraise to get this building built and also be very involved with the design of this Mm. building, which was a very exciting thing for me. I'd never worked with architects before. Mm. Um, So, yes, I I decided to to go after nine years. But when I started, I really liked the thought that I would be learning to do things that I had no idea how to do. Mm. I mean, I'd you know I'd done some big administrative jobs, but I hadn't run an institution mm-hmm. before, and it was a very exciting thing to do. Mm. And you learnt that you were going to do things like fundraising, which mm. I hadn't done so much of yeah. before in my life. And that mm. that's it. yeah, obviously you have a 
you know, the first thing I did was to appoint a development director, which mm. there hadn't been here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we worked very well together and that, that went very well. But it's, it's not something, again, it's something you learn how to do by doing it. Yes. Yeah. And what's next for you? Oh, I'm just in the early stages of my next book, which is a life of um, the art historian and novelist Anita Bruckner. Mm. And I'm deeply buried in all her writings Mm. at the moment. And I've given myself a very nice, easy, long deadline uh, for what is going to be a relatively short book for Mm. me. Because I I just. Well, not more than. Um, 300 pages okay, fine. <laughs> as opposed to the last one which weighed in at considerably more than that okay. it was a, a big life of Tom Stoppard yeah. and I, I had the opportunity to work with him and I thought well it's a big life and I might as well do the whole thing so yes. it was a great big book mm. and it was a lot of work and it took me six years yeah. um, and it came out during lockdown yeah. but um, so I'm, I'm taking life a little bit easier yes. but I'm still writing that's great well, I hope this one takes you considerably shorter length of time than six years. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming it's on. Great pleasure. Place. Thank you for all the good questions.